Why settle for small talk when you can savor big ideas with hashtag brew theology? We brew up discussions so good they'll leave you thinking long after the last sip. Cheers to the art of conversation over craft beer or coffee, kombucha, water, tea, whatever you want. Hashtag crafting combos. We are Brew Theology. We brew that and we create interfaith communities through dialogue in pubs, coffee houses across the country. We have chapters. You can check us out on the line, brewtheology.org, at Brew Theology Instagram and Facebook, and then Brew underscore on the X, formerly known as Twitter. That's Brew underscore over there on Musk's platform. I think we have a threads too. So whatever the Instagram is, that's where the thread, I don't post on threads. Someday I may. But if you want to start a chapter, you can email Janelle or myself. That's Janelle, J-A-N-E-L at brewtheology.org or Ryan at brewtheology.org. And then if you like this particular podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Pocket Cast, Google Play, wherever you find this, make sure you share it on the line with your friends. So today, Janelle has a very good friend and she's going to introduce him. And we're going to be talking about something that's going to be a bit more vulnerable. And I like that when we go down these kinds of roads because uh, I think it's needed when we're trying to have interfaith dialogue, which leads to communities. I think these kind of discussions are are needed as you actually go deeper into those friendships. So I'll let Janelle take it from here. Well, thank you. And today I'm happy to introduce to you my friend, Dan C. He is an accomplished engineer who's worked everywhere from NASA to large tech firms. I met Dan 11 years ago when we moved to Colorado. Dan is a deeply spiritual person who is continually wrestling with the mysteries of spirituality. He has been a brew theologian for several years and has shared with us on several topics, including A Course in Miracles and our topic today, Recovering from an Imperfect Childhood. He is the host of an ACA Loving Parent Guidebook group study. Welcome, Dan. We are so glad to have you. It's good to be here. So I thought we'd just start with our normal introductions. We haven't done those in a while and the drill. So I'll start and then Ryan, and then you can do it a little more expansive if you so want. I, I'm going I'm to oh. just real, real quick say this. People are getting them down to about 10 seconds. Really? And that's not on the podcast, but like it, here in Waco in the pub, it's becoming like a competition. And I'm really impressed because... I've been doing this forever and I'm like, I'm, I can get about 27 seconds and new people are are like doing it in 12 seconds. I'm like, Whoa, that, that's impressive. That is impressive. Yeah. Like yeah. we should, we should start having bets now. But... All right. So, so let's time <laughs> you on yours. We'll see how we do here today. You don't have to go 30 seconds. Since you're our guest, you can go at least over a minute. I feel. Definitely. I think so. Well, I'm Janelle. I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene and moved to Colorado about 12 years ago and now carry the label of uh, an interfaith leader that is rooted in Christianity. And yeah, that that's my label. Ryan, you have a more interesting label. Not that interesting anymore. The, the, the older I get, the more I realize I don't have much to say and the more people I get to interact with, especially after coming back from the Parliament of World Religions. I'm like, I, I don't know if I have anything interesting to say anymore. But uh, I grew up Southern Baptist, state of Texas, spent 20 plus years. I'm just going to say plus deconstructing, reconstructing, glean from the Anabaptist, the Methodist, the Jewish, the Pentecostal, along with process and liberation uh, as well. So, but yeah, the interfaith world is definitely my jam and deep ecumenism, a word that Rabbi Steve introduced to me years ago. That's Rabbi Stephen Booth Nadav, previous episodes, if y'all want to listen. Yeah, the One River Mini Wells, that's been our jam for a while through brew theology. And I'm more fully entering into that on a just personal, even embodied way. So 
I enjoyed this. It's fun. Yeah. If you've been listening long enough that Chanel and I have got <laughs> probably there's more probably more to it than that, but that was probably 40 seconds. I apologize. Dan. Hi, I'm Dan. I grew up in non-denominational churches, mostly charismatic leaning. Moved out to California and discovered the vineyard out there, which is sort of a non-denomination that you would swear is a denomination, had its peak back in the 80s and 90s, definitely has charismatic leanings, and sort of evolved into being more accepting of new age. So early on, we were always told, never listen to anything that you can't quote directly out of the Bible. And, and then you find out a lot of the stuff has history that goes back millennia and was probably common all around in Israel's times, ancient Israel. And along the way, a whole lot of that evolved a, a whole lot of figuring out what's really working for me and what isn't and what do I listen to and who is God, right? And then I, due to some various leadings, I ended up discovering 12-step and specifically adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families known as ACOA. We used to call it ACA, but then the Affordable Care Act showed up and stomped all over that. So we were here first, but it doesn't matter. And that's been enlightening. It really helped me to look at both sort of some of the things I didn't get growing up in my family and also in church. Kind of one of the things you realize is when your family's having trouble, there's a tendency to use the church as a family substitute. But the more you learn about dysfunctional families, the more you realize that often churches are just like families, including the dysfunction. And some of that got me looking at sort of helping to see the culture in the church in a new way, because the 12-step programs have their own culture to them, which is specific to what they're trying to do. But I think there's a lot of interesting overlap that can happen there. Yeah. So we're going to dive into that today, the ACA or now the ACOA, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families, as you had said. And there was a curriculum piece that you wrote for the Denver community. So can you just tell us a little bit more about ACA, how you ended up there, the 12 steps, how that's been meaningful to you more specifically, and then we'll just kind of set that up and keep going. Yeah. Well, so most people have heard of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? That's the most famous one. And it's the first one. It goes back to 1935. I'm lousy on the history. It's nearly a century old. And you look at it and you go, some people argue that it's it's not super effective at making people sober. It's just the best thing out there, right? No other program does better. And their focus is get sober because when you drink, it destroys your life. Now, some people can drink and it doesn't destroy their life and we don't call them alcoholics. It's tricky though that sometimes the destroying your life is not as obvious as others, right? Some people show up in AA after the divorce or the court date, right? They've either destroyed the relationships or they've done stuff so bad that the courts are going, you will either get help or you will spend some time in our hospitality. And so that's that's the first one. AA also spawned Al-Anon, which is typically wives of alcoholics or spouses. It can go each way. And the equality that we're having today, we're seeing more and more women show up with these problems. But a lot of it is people, if they're trying to stay married, which they usually are, they have to sort of realize that they don't control their alcoholic. 
that it's there's parts that they can control and there's parts that they can they can control their response and what boundaries they set and how they interact but the the alanon is the addiction is not your problem specifically there's also an alatine for the, the children of alcoholics and so in case you're wondering there's a path to all this alatine a number of the teens that came out once they moved out of the home with alcoholic they're like okay all my problems are over right right i'm no longer living with an alcoholic therefore my problems are gone and they're like well no <laughs> turns out there's a series of problems that i tend to have and they were used to the alatine format they started meeting like a 12 step program and they at one point they wrote down a list of sort of what these problems were and that became known as the aca laundry list and a lot of it is these dysfunctions going on in the home, alcoholics almost always breed dysfunction. And there's two reasons for this. Usually they've got their own childhood problems and the alcoholism is a way to numb those problems and to sidestep some of the things that aren't working in their life. And the fact that they haven't solved those problems means when they have kids, they in invariably create dysfunctional families and the kids inherit these problems because the adult didn't know how to process their feelings. The kids don't know how to process their feelings and the kids tend to, they learn to cope, right? They're incredibly adaptable and they figure out what they need to do. And usually there's a couple roles that they go into. They're either the hero, right? The kid that gets all the praise, they're the quarterback, they're doing lots of stuff. And so they get only praise because they're awesome. Often we see families where there's one golden child, right? Who's the awesome one. And the other ones, that role is taken. And so they either become the lost child. They just disappear into their books or their games or clubs or social circles. And you don't hear from them, right? They're often out of the house as much as they can. And there's other ones. The, the mascot is kind of a variation of the golden child. It's the kid that always cracks the family up and distracts. If they can get the family laughing, they can sidestep from the brewing problem that's about to have because there's usually lots of them because people don't learn how to work this stuff out. And some of these, I wonder, I hear Billy Crystal's story, how he was the youngest of a big family and how he learned to crack the family up. And I'm like, he is a mascot. I just swear he is. And so you learn things doing these roles that can be useful. Being the golden child isn't easy, but you learn how to, to get people's attention. You can turn into a great politician from there. It's a lot of the same skills. And so some of this has its benefits, but you're still hurting inside, right? You're still sidestepping a situation that you didn't know how to deal with. And so the standard ACA hidden story at home is don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, right? And you do that both within the family. There's some people you can talk to and some people you can't, but also outside, right? You never talk to an outsider and say, yeah, I didn't like it when my parent hit me. And that's kind of a, that's a hard thing to say out loud. And it's not in every family and physical abuse isn't the only sign, right? Some of it is just a lack of emotional connection. And so ACA is sort of, in a lot of ways, people talk to it about as a as grad school for 12-step programs, right? Once you get sober enough, then you start digging into the childhood things that made you want to numb out or sidestep the things that you were trying to do. 
And so ACA helps you to work through that family stuff and it will end up rebuilding how you relate to everything because now you're standing up for yourself, right? Not being a people pleaser and actually showing up, not being a lost child. It, it changes a lot of stuff. And so it ends up being an, an intense path that you can take at whatever speed works for you. Can you talk a little bit more too about this? Because when people hear this initially, and you've already referred to this, they think of okay, alcoholism, which is obviously extremely important to deal with and to talk about and to wrestle with for people to get healing, to get sober. But then you talk about this dysfunctionality as well in the family home. So could you list some things that people could be like, oh, I because some people may say, oh, I'm not dysfunctional. My family is not dysfunctional. There's typically a, a hand out saying this doesn't apply to me. This applies to those people. Uh, and so it can be tricky. One, it's behaviors that are you other problems. So food, right? Overheaters Anonymous is, is a 12-step program. Shopping, gambling, work. I'm a workaholic. I would bury myself into work to avoid dealing with the fact that my relationships weren't working. And I, it was a way to get praise. It was trying to be the golden child at work. It can show up in relationships. CODA is Codependence Anonymous. People often get into relationships and build their life around somebody else because it's much easier to fix other people's problems than to fix your own. Then like the ACA stuff, if you've got parents or children, you're also a candidate. And other relationship things, like some churches are just classic dysfunctional families. They're not actually dealing with their problems and they've got various internal real structure that is not the one on the org chart. And so, yeah, and I don't have the list of 12-step groups here. If you go to Wikipedia, there's like 35 of them listed. And then others are like, oh, have you heard about this one? Clutter can be a reaction. My perspective coming through ACA is that a lot of these addictions are ways you're sidestepping other problems. And so it can, yeah, it can manifest as hoarding or a number of things. And it, like I start off with, it's a little tricky because eating, we need eating, right? Oh, I didn't even mention sex. There's like six different sex 12-step uh, programs out there. And trying to figure out what's a healthy relationship with sex and relationships. That's a super tricky one for a number of people. I don't know. What didn't I cover? Anything that can be done obsessively. And so the real question is, are you obsessing about something to avoid something else? And is it causing you problems? And a lot of people will go, if they start reading through 12-step programs, I'm like, I got that one. I got that one. I'm got one. It's like, okay, pick one to start. So, I mean, um, ultimately, like, I mean, think about the, the busyness factor in our country and, and regardless of, of what you do, people can't sit still. They can't be by themselves. They can't listen to their inner mind, heart, spirit. So, yeah, that's probably everybody. Right. Well, and I'm a workaholic. and Phones, half, technology. Yeah. Well, half the workaholic people are retirees, right? They're not working, but they're like, we're activity addicts. We can't stop doing pickleball and groups and other stuff, if we stopped, what would we do? Who would we be? We don't know. And we probably have a weird one in all of our history of being religiously addicted in a way, our fundamentalism and that process of deconstructing may reflect some of these steps as well. Yeah. Getting obsessive about religion and theology and how to do God, I think is a classic symptom 
I actually don't know of a 12 step program for that, but there probably is one. Um, <laughs> or we can start one. Yes. Yeah. While we drink beer. I don't know how that works. <laughs> you can drink whatever you'd like to drink. Yep. Drink whatever you like. Well, I know, Dan, I resonated with when you talked about the idea of don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. That vibes with being in the church for me. And you wrote something here that I thought was really great. And I wondered if you wanted to say more. You said that speaking your truth and feeling the feelings are vital actions. In time, those actions will also help you to trust yourself. Do you want to expand on that and and maybe give us some examples of what that's looked like for you? One of the ACA things that I see so let me back up. A lot of the, yeah. the frontline 12-step programs, they're often focused on getting sober, right? Because as long as you're doing this addictive behavior that's spinning your life out of control continuously, you can't really heal. And so getting sober is the first step. What I see in the ACA is a bit different. So the AA thing is wisdom, strength, and hope. So often what you're doing in a meeting is supporting each other, right? It is a community. It is a mini family that comes from a different basis and can have more positive outcomes than what you're used to. But they're specifically focused on supporting each other, right? Uh, wisdom, strength, and hope. But in ACA, what I've seen is it's less about the wisdom and more about speaking your truth. So in, in the group, we had a person saying, I was sexually molested as a child. She said that out loud. And it chokes me up just hearing it right because that's a hard thing to say and she's older she's lived her whole life dancing around not saying those words but it was she's got a rough story and just to say that out loud makes a difference because you're speaking the truth right that's what happened and you're speaking it to somebody else you're not hiding it you're trusting people to not abuse that and it's a critical step in to be able to address those things and and realize that does she have trust issues? How could she not? When people in her own family abused her in that way, it's going to have echoes that are going to last a long time and you can deal with it. And so there's a lot power in just stating what happened. We do have to sort of we use time limits a lot because some people, you let them talk and they will never stop. That's a different set of problems. So you sort of find wisdom in the programs on sort of how to process stuff like that. Now, I should also bring out that, that there's a rule in most 12-step programs that there's no crosstalk. So when she says that, we say nothing. We don't do the there, there's or the anything. We just listen. And there's some reasons for that because a lot of times the well-intentioned there's backfire. We try to smooth things out when the only way forward is through. But it, yeah, it's a space for let, letting people talk about what did and didn't happen. There's an argument that every abuse starts with neglect, right? Because if they were paying attention to your needs, they would never do those things. And so there's layers there that she'll eventually have to work through. But it boggles your mind when you see people actually making progress on this stuff and realize what if they had discovered this 30 years earlier. Yeah, so opening these very safe, they are very safe spaces. I don't think we use that 
word for brew theology. I think we did initially, but we realized since it's public, people can kind of come and go. We don't have as many ground rules. Um, it's more brave than it is safe. Um, this seems more safe. Opening that up and then you're basically reparenting your inner child in a lot of ways. So I'm just kind of curious, how does that journey look? I know it's different for everybody, but what's that model? What's that framework? How does that address that deep trauma? I mean, you had mentioned one of the worst case scenarios, but there's countless stories like that, which could take years, I'm sure, to dive deep into trying to reparent yourself. So yeah, reparenting yourself is a key phrase in ACA. So it's learning how to be the loving parent that you probably didn't experience. And so you've got to start from ground zero and going, what would a loving parent do in these situations? And then, yeah, the the inner child is that innocent part of us that trusted implicitly growing up. The Loving Parent Guidebook actually uses this model. The people that have looked at the psychology is called internal family systems. And they do a an inner child, an inner teen, a critical parent, and a loving parent. So you're trying to develop that loving parent who actually looks out for all the other ones. So that inner child is the one that trusted everybody. The inner teen is the one trying to find its own way in the world, as the way I like to describe it. And so they're, the inner teen is the one figuring out boundaries, who you are, how you want to relate to people. The critical parent is that voice that we heard, and sometimes it's a voice of a parent or somebody else in the family directly that's generally trying to self-censor to avoid problems. Don't put your head up. Don't address that topic because it'll go badly. And it's trying to help, but it only has a few tools, right? It's basically don't. And that's a problem because we need relationships. And that does involve figuring out how to trust and how vulnerable to be. You're trying to develop those loving parent skills that are looking out for that that innocent, joyful self that's still in there. It may take you a while to reconnect with it, but it's there. And that teen who's figuring out how to be in the world and to balance all those in a wise way. And I don't want to, I like to give a little credit to the that critical parent because it was trying to help and it's still there trying to help. And sometimes you still need to keep your head down, right? But a lot of times you, when you hear that, you're going, no, I can handle this. It's okay. And so that's the core of the Loving Parent Guidebook. It's one of the newest workbooks in the ACA curriculum. It's not even officially released yet, but everybody that I know that's gone through it has found it to be profound. And it sort of it reintroduces that, that internal family system and how to relate to it. And some of this is very practical. It's just being aware that they're there and taking care of them, right? The, one of the simplest forms of love is what would you do if you cared? If I'm going to care for myself, then I need time that is not work. I need to do some things that fill my tank, that give me energy. And so paying attention and actually doing that stuff is a, a critical step. It's sort of hard to explain to somebody else until you walk the path, but learning to love yourself is something you'll hear. And when you do it, it's like, it's both hard work and it changes your entire perspective. And as you love yourself, then you learn how to love others. And at the same time, 
And you still will need boundaries, both with yourself and also with others and learning how to do that. Boundaries, are, it's an easy word, but figuring them out on the fly is often more difficult. I was out doing tree work the other day. This is a complete side tangent, I guess. But And I'm like, I need to stay hydrated. It's a warm day. It's sunny. And I can't make a boundary that is I never get dehydrated because it just happens, right? But I can make a boundary that I always make sure I take water with me. And so I've at least set up for success. And so that sort of the illustrates some of the thinking of sort of how do you make a boundary that really works? If you want to share, is there, do you have an example, maybe something small in your life where this work has been transformative for you? Uh, let's see. It's hard to answer that. Part of it is it changes your whole perspective. And so I'm not sure there are any small examples. <laughs> and then part of it is, it, it's just like it's a new day and you're just changing how you approach everything. Thanks so much for listening to the Brew Theology podcast and part one of our interview with Dan C. on recovery from an imperfect childhood. If you enjoyed this show, please like and share. You can find out more about Brew Theology at brewtheology.org at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram, and at Brew underscore Theology on X. If you have any questions, please email Ryan or Janelle at Brew Theology, and we hope you'll join us next time for part two of this great discussion. Thanks so much. Cheers.